Second Timothy, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter two. I, I don't think I've ever preached through First Timothy, and so the lectionary has been given us Timothy passages, so I decided we will we will stay in First Timothy for this fall. A powerful passage, really is a short one, but it, it, there's a lot going on here. Um, listen to the word of God. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think one of the most interesting things about us modern humans is that we have this attraction, repulsion, to the idea of authority and autocrats. Now, by nature, we as Americans are pretty suspicious of authority. From the beginning, we've been kind of an anti-authoritarian bunch, right? Uh, and I'm no different. I, uh, I attended an Episcopal church for a while. I was working uh, at an Episcopal church, and um, they had me on staff when I was doing some of my consulting thing. And I thought, you know, I considered being an Episcopal priest for about 20 minutes, um, it was a short consideration, but uh, I appreciate them. But I just not—that's not—I could not see myself being a priest. Um, but I had to join. I didn't have to, but they—you know—I decided I would join the church because they didn't really—they didn't recognize my ordination, so nothing lost. So I, I, I could be a member there, and I just thought I had to transfer in because I'd been a member. But the day that we were to join the church, uh, the uh, priest of the congregation said. Oh, by the way, you're going to have to kneel in front of the bishop to join the church. And I said, you didn't tell me that. He goes, I know, because you probably wouldn't do it if I had told you. <laughs> and so even though I should have known that theologically, but something about having to kneel in front of a bishop, I, it took a lot of, I don't know, holding my tongue or holding my knee or something to do that. Okay, It really was against my um, constitution to kneel in front of any human being. Um, so, you know, none of us are consciously looking for a king. Now, we have this kind of interesting relationship in the American Christian Church with authority, you know, because it's a slippery slope if we appeal to the passage like Romans 13, or the one today that we've read, you know, as a, an appeal that as Christians we're always to be obedient to the government. 
Actually, a recent attorney general appealed to Romans 13, said that the government had a right to do what it was doing, and we should listen to the government. It must be obeyed. But as William Stringfellow reminded us a generation ago, that not only is Romans 13 in the New Testament, but Revelations 13 is in the New Testament as well. And sometimes the government is there to give order. But sometimes, as Revelation 13 reminds us, the government becomes the beast. The government becomes Antichrist and must be opposed. I think it's particularly ironic for an American official to argue for God-ordained nature of government and that we were founded as a country on an insurrection against a God-ordained king. Matter of fact, this is part of the American revolutionary history that's not mentioned, but there were a lot of people who were not for the revolution. Matter of fact, the tradition we're in, the Dutch Reformed tradition, was kind of quietly more loyalist at the beginning than it was for the revolution. We have record of about 200 clergy who actually openly opposed the revolution on biblical grounds. Matter of fact, one wrote, if government was God's ordinance to man, little more need to be said. Disagreement with government becomes rebellion against authority and in turn, opposition to God. And there were many clergy who, who thought that. Now there were many who were, who were part of the revolution as well. The American Revolution was more Lockean than Paul Lane. There may have been evangelical fervor in it, but it was Enlightenment ideas and thinkers who guided it. Now, I think that's important for us to keep in mind, particularly during this kind of partisan time that we're in. What is our proper relationship with our government? But more importantly, what is our proper relationship with, with each other and those in our community? 1 Timothy was written either before the Jewish revolt against the Roman authorities. The Jewish revolt happened around, began around 66 um, of the Common Era and ended in the destruction of Jerusalem. About a million people died in the Jewish revolt against the Romans. So if Paul wrote this, and it's traditionally attributed to Paul, then this was during a time of great ferment, right before the Jewish revolution or Jewish revolt. If it was written after the Jewish revolt, which some people think that it was compiled by either students or disciples of Paul, then people are still living in the aftermath of this remarkable trauma. So you can understand whether it's Paul, as things were really stirred up, or after the disaster, that the leaders, the early leaders of the Christian movement were calling for us to live as peaceable members in society as much as we can. Prayers for the king needs to be seen strategically and provisionally because there's something happening on a cosmic level that is ultimately more important. I think that's really important for us to remember. Yes, we live in the time and place that we are. And we're shaped by the events that are going on around us. But as Christians, we believe that there's something hidden going on. There is a cosmic revolution, if you would, from the hand of God through Christ. And so the exhortation is, 
you know, pray for stability. <laughs> pray for those in charge. Keep your nose clean. Try to live a quiet, peaceable life. Now, it's hard to do that, right? It's hard to find balance in almost all areas of our life. And particularly, you know, in this current state that we're in politically, there's so much turmoil, there's so much animosity, so much tribalism. And sometimes this passage in 1 Timothy is, I think, misunderstood. Some people think that it's called for a kind of quietism, a kind of removing oneself from what's going on politically. The relative social conservatism of the early church has very little in common with the subsequent temptation that Christians have had in every generation to identify with the power structures either for self-preservation or to benefit from the proximity of power. Thus, when we think about Luther's, howbeit nuanced, condemnation of the peasant revolt, or the southern church's defense of slavery, or both the German Protestant and the German or the German Roman Catholic accommodations with the Nazis, we are reminded of the tragic cost of conserving the status quo. First Timothy calls us to pray for the king and to live a quiet, peaceable life. It's not a call to accommodate. It's not a call to align oneself with the powers that be. But it was a mission strategy. And it was a strategy that nothing should distract from the revolutionary message that in Christ, God was saving the cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos. That's the word in John chapter 3. And that with the crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God was initiating the beginning of the process that everything would be brought under Christ. And so one of the things that's really important is that it's one thing to try to not cause problems. <laughs> it's another thing to join with the devil, all right? And I think that's an important, important thing. As much as possible, we're being called to live a peaceable life. Support your government and authorities as long as it doesn't go against your conscience. Of course, we live in a different time as well, right? Because we don't have a king. We are the magistrate. We are represented democracy. So it's a different dynamic. But nonetheless, I think sometimes we have to resist the temptation that is so prevalent in our culture just to trash politicians because they're politicians. We really do want people to serve us. And as long as we have a representative democracy, we need people in positions in government. And I think it would be in everyone's best interest if we get our best people. And we're not going to get our best people if we keep ripping them apart just to rip them apart. But at the same time, this passage in no way is advocating a blind allegiance to power, nor is it a, an excuse to make hellish compromises in the name of keeping the peace. But we also have to remember that we must be patient, okay? We live in a fallen world, and just as we are sinners 
so is everyone around us. The great theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar said this, One cannot overstate the importance of patience in the New Testament, which becomes the basic constitute of Christianity, more central even than humility, the power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure to the end, not to transcend one's own limitation, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, the meekness of the lamb which is led. Perhaps one of the greatest virtues that we could demonstrate in this time in our country is patience. Not only with each other, with ourselves, but with those fallen people who we have elected to lead us. Now, there's a very important passage in this text, and um, I want to draw your attention to it again. Um, verse chapter chapter three or chapter I mean verse four. Who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Now, as I said, this idea of praying for the government or praying for your rulers. This idea of trying to live peaceful, quiet lives is a mission strategy. In other words, don't create more problems for yourself than you need to because your chief purpose in this world is to proclaim and share the glorious news of Christ. And there's this interesting phrase here that God desires that everyone would be saved. Now, there's a, uh, the debate whether or not everyone is saved or not is something that raises its head periodically. It's going on uh, in some of the circles that I run in. It's a renewed debate. And one of the things that's interesting to ask the question, does this teach that everyone will be saved? Again, historically, our tradition has taught that some are elect for salvation and some are elect for damnation. Now, that's you know the classic understanding of the Dutch Reformed Church. There are obviously many people in the contemporary church don't actually teach it that way or believe that. That's, that's not how I talk about it, but it is part of the Reformed tradition. Actually, it's part of the Roman Catholic tradition. Thomas Aquinas taught that. Augustine, on very bad days, taught that. Right? On Augustine's good days, he's not so, not so much. <laughs> but at the end of Augustine's life, he was not a happy man. And some of the darkest doctrines of Christianity come out of the late years of Augustine and those ideas were picked up by certain branches of the Reformation but as this passage says that God wills that everyone be saved does this mean that hell might be potentially empty C.S. Lewis once remarked that the door that leads to hell has the lock on the inside What's the implication? How does one stay in hell? Yeah. And you know, there's a sense where, just like we believe heaven actually begins here, when the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are now in Christ. That we are literally, uh, our, our eternal destiny is in God right now because we're in Christ, right? But this idea, and we've all seen it tragically, 
how many people have created hells for themselves, right? Yeah. And this idea, Van Balthazar again said, there will never be beings unloved by God since God is absolute love. So, what do you do with this, with this mystery? Because there are plenty of passages. In fact, we talked about a couple weeks ago, the two ways, okay, right? The way of life, the way of death. That, that is part of the message of the scripture, both in the Hebrews scriptures, but certainly it's present in the New Testament as well. Jesus talks as much about hell as he does heaven, almost as much. Now, what Jesus means by that, that's a whole other sermon or 20 sermons, all right? But still, it's this tension, and I think it's important for us not to collapse the tension. This is what we do frequently, okay? We collapse the tension. Modernists, you know, eliminate hell because, you know, these are the same people that think you should get a trophy for participation, okay? You know, this, the culture of trophy participation means, okay, just because you're here, you get to go to heaven. And then, the tradition I grew up in, sometimes when I would hear preachers as a kid, it almost seemed they enjoyed the idea that people were going to hell, <laughs> you know? And sometimes we like the hell stories just like it was going to a scary movie. You know, we always had these evangelists and they would preach really vivid things about hell. And you'd be terrified and you go, let's go back again. Let's hear that again. It's like a scary movie. Okay. A little messed up. But that's, some of us grew up that way. But I think the, the New Testament tension is that our salvation is based in the hope of what God will do. I've always said this. I can't get anyone to heaven. So I never send anyone to hell. And I think we want to live in that tension. The work of Christ, it's not because we're nice. No one's going to be in heaven because they deserve to be in heaven. But the power of the work of Christ is so big and so immense. But so is the human responsibility. And so we don't guarantee anything in the future except that the future belongs to God. You know, when, when I do funerals for people who have minimal faith backgrounds, the one thing I always do is I make sure I... I tell people they're in the hands of God. And I don't know that there's any better place to be. No guarantees, right? No guarantees. But that's, I think, what this passage is pointing to. It's not telling us, <laughs> it's not telling us that everyone will be saved. Okay? It's telling us that God desires it. It's not because humans are good. It's because the work of Christ is immense. So we shall see. But the real heart of this passage is the little creedal statement that is there. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and humanity. Jesus Christ, himself human. There is one God... There's one mediator 
Jesus. And there's one humanity. Part of the power here is God is not partisan. God is not tribal, even though we are. But the central reason that we should live peaceable (laughs) as much as possible is because we are part of those who proclaim the good news of Christ. Even the hope that we have is not to let us be quiet. Because we have the hope that God would desire that the world would be saved, that God so loved the world, then that is to inspire us to go out into the world, not to be quiet, not to be passive. It's not, I'm okay, you're okay. It's, I'm not okay, you're not so hot either, but God saved us. That's the message. (laughs) That really is. This idea of the power of the reconciling work of Christ can heal anything, can heal everything, will heal everything. I'm probably going to mispronounce this name, but Alice Bukharandi and Emmanuel Dasabi, as children, were classmates in Rwanda. She was a Tutsi. And he was Hutu. And when the massacres began in 1994, Emmanuel was recruited with his brothers to be hatchet men for the Hutus and to kill as many Tutsis as possible. He attacked, he and his brothers attacked Alice's village. And as she was shielding her baby from Emmanuel, he cut off her hand and left her for dead and killed her child. Three years later, after the massacre, Emmanuel turned himself in to the authorities for killing over a dozen people. And he was released six years later as part of a government program to pardon Houthis who acknowledged their crimes. And so once Emmanuel was released from prison, he was a Christian, he began trying to find the families he had hurt to apologize. So he found the woman who had killed her child. He found Alice and he kneeled at her feet, weeping, asking for forgiveness. She spent two weeks thinking about this, praying about it, talking to her husband, but she eventually forgave Emmanuel for the crime. The story doesn't end there. They eventually became friends, and, and worked side by side as treasurer and vice president of an organization that was constructing homes for the survivors. And now I, <laughs> I can't imagine that. I can't imagine being her. I want to say that I can't imagine being him either, but I know there's a darkness inside all of us. But what I do know and believe 
is that that is the kind of thing that only Christ can do. That is the power that was unleashed in the crucifixion and in the resurrection. Maximus Confessor said this, God is the great hidden history, Christ is the great hidden history, the blessed goal, the purpose for which everything was created. With his gaze fixed on this goal, God called things into existence. In fact, it is for the sake of Christ and for his mystery that all ages exist and all that they contain. That is our message. That is our reality. And that is the gift that we can give this world at this time, in this place. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's continue our worship of giving to God our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings. It's only when there is a hole within us, it's only when we realize that we have sinned, are we open to be dependent on the mercy of God. Now, I'm not particularly interested in speculating on the necessity of sin, like our Dutch forefathers and mothers did. All right, That's not my particular interest. But what I do see in these difficult passages, the discussion of the nature of sin, the high cost of idolatry, is that in the end, mercy wins. The people of Israel ultimately repented saw the persecutor persecutor becomes Paul the Apostle. You and I in our own little worlds, whatever we are tempted, whatever our fates were going to be, we have said yes to the grace of God, and you and I are now agents, representatives, vessels of the mercy of God, wherever we find ourselves. That is not only good news, that is amazing news. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe.